Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, reporting to you from deep inside the internet with my extremely socially distant co-host, Carrie Plitt, all the way in Oxford. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm okay, Octavia. I am... I feel like I'm just getting through it right now. You know, I'm not good or bad. I'm just, like, getting through it. And I do feel like there's some hope on the horizon. I'm unsure about the government's plans to reopen everything on the 21st of June, but also feeling quite hopeful about a summer where we can actually do things. So I'm getting through it. How about you? Yeah, pretty much the same. I was going to say one foot in front of the other, but I'm just sitting down, aren't I, mostly? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got a cramp in one side of my butt today from crossing my legs too much (laughs) sitting in the seat. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) that's age that's age coming for you my darling yeah I'm also actually currently feeling quite guilty because we're still doing supermarket deliveries because I'm still taking care of my mum on and off and um, my poor old partner is unbagging all of the food as we speak diligently wiping it down and I'm here doing this instead which is way more fun do you know that's hilarious because that's literally what's happening in our house too Eddie just went went food shopping and is now putting all of the groceries away downstairs because I couldn't help him oh that's amazing that's beautiful well we should actually get to some work considering these dear men are breaking their backs in the kitchen so nice little segue for Minnesota 19 (laughs) We are doing something a little bit different. This episode is sponsored by publisher Serpent's Tale, who we are huge fans of and who are celebrating their 35th birthday this year. In fact, just like both of us, you just turned 35, didn't you, Carrie? I did, I did, I did. And I will be 35 in August for those of you who would like to send presents. Classic Leo, as I've learned recently. (laughs) Testing my mane, yeah. Classic, guilty. We are the best, though. Anyway... We've had many brilliant Serpent's Tale authors on the show over the years, including Chris Krause, Carmen Maria Machado, Mary Gateskill, Essie Dugin, and Sarah Perry. So in honour of their birthday, we are going to speak to Serpent's Tale publisher Hannah Westland about what it's like to be an editor. Even though it's usually just one name on the cover, publishing a book is a team effort, and we're really excited to have the chance to talk to an editor in depth about that side of the process. This isn't something we've done before in Literary Friction, and we really hope our listeners will enjoy hearing about this important part of the evolution of a book, whether you're a writer or a reader or a publisher yourself. Carrie, can you introduce Hannah? I sure can, Octavia. Hannah Westland started her career in publishing in 2002 at Rogers Coleridge and White Literary Agency, where she worked for 10 years, rising from agent's assistant to literary agent. In 2012, she became publisher at Serpent's Tale, an imprint of Profile Books, which specializes in publishing groundbreaking and original fiction from all over the world. It does, and I love reading their books. I also love their cover art. They always have really excellent cover art. But before we speak to Hannah about editing, I think we should give a bit of background about Serpent's Tale and what makes them such an interesting publisher. Pete Ayrton founded Serpent's Tale in 1986, the year we were both born, an illustrious yeah, year all the, around. The tiger, right? Yeah, mate, that's right. We tigers? Yeah. We are tigers. I'm a fire tiger, actually. <laughs> oh my God. Of oh my God, you, you unleashed the Leo in me. Um, <laughs> so he founded Serpent's Tale in 1986 with a mission to introduce British readers to risk-taking world literature that no one else in the UK was publishing. The list established a reputation for celebrating diversity and for fearlessness, publishing writers of colour from all over the world, including Langston Hughes, Ernest J. Gaines, Nella Larson, Walter Mosley, 
Alain Mabankou and Lola Shonayin, and LGBT authors including Virginie Despont, Jane County, and Neil Bartlett. Serpent's Tale launched the careers of major authors such as David Peace, Michelle Welbeck, and Colm Toybin, and turned the transgressive books The Sexual Life of Catherine M. by Catherine Millet and We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver into bestsellers. Will you say Virginie Despont again to me? Virginie Despont. Oh my god. I have always wanted to read her books though. Besides <laughs> She's a really great writer. to hear you say her name. But after two decades of independence, in 2007, Serpent's Tale joined Profile Books, also independent, where it continues as an imprint that celebrates originality. As they say, they publish writers who dare to think differently and help us look at the world anew. Whether Serpent's Tale books make the past feel immediate or illuminate the present are subtly are subtly devastating, politically urgent, or laugh out loud funny, they always have something important to say or something that hasn't been said before. Their best-selling authors include Sarah Perry, who wrote the prize-winning novel The Essex Serpent, and who we talked to on Literary Friction many years ago, Essie Adugin, who has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize twice for her novels Half-Blood Blues and Washington Black, a book that I absolutely adored and that we also featured on the show. She was such a thoughtful guest. Karen Joy Fowler, whose novel We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and has sold over 1 million copies, as well as Mary Gateskill, Susan Choi, Jamie Attenberg, Attica Locke, Carmen Maria Machado, Saidia Hartman, Ruby Tando, and many more. It's such a great lineup, isn't it? Really, so many writers I love and others that I've been looking forward to reading for ages, like Jamie Attenberg and Attica Locke, two names that are, you know, always in my mind as people I want to read. Serpent's Tale also have a classic series featuring a growing selection of cult masterpieces that includes works by Langston Hughes, Eileen Miles, who I bang on about all the time, I feel like, but if you don't already know their work, then get onto it because they're an absolutely phenomenal writer, and Chester Heim. They also have a boutique list, Tusker Rock, that has published, among many books, a literary friction favourite, I Love Dick by Chris Krause, and a new crime and thriller imprint called Viper, which excites me in particular. All of that in 35 years. So stay tuned for our chat with Hannah to hear about what it's like to be an editor, how she works with authors and also with text and what it means to be looking for fresh talent. We hope you enjoy it. And this is especially going out there for all the 35 year olds. (laughs) Yes, but is accessible to others who are not 35. (laughs) All ages welcome. But if you were also born in 1986, you are especially welcome. It was a very good year. I think so. A good vintage, my darling. Hannah Westland, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for having me. We're really thrilled to be here. So I wanted to start just by asking what made you want to be an editor? Yeah, so it's a funny one for me because I've never actually been a straightforward editor. Before I joined Serpent's Tale, I was an agent for quite a long time. I started my career at a literary agency and spent 10 years there before I moved over to Serpent's Tale, um, where I moved straight into the publisher role. So I think in a way, the kind of agent publisher jobs have some overlap, but maybe it's a bit different to being an editor, because apart from really focusing on acquiring and editing books, which is what an editor's job is, I've always had to have an overview of a whole list of writers and think about 
sort of how to manage a list, whether it's on the agency side, looking after their interests in the round or on the publishing side, looking after a whole list and thinking about the editors that you manage and how to develop them as well as the individual books. So, yeah, so I've never actually had as much time for straightforward, pure editing as I would have liked because I love to edit and I always kind of thought that that would be the job and the focus that I would have. But it's my job is juggling lots of different things and I do try to try to do some editing jobs each year, but never quite as many as I would like. It sounds like your authors really, really benefit from that. 360 degree experience you've had though in the industry to kind of see it across all the different boundaries when you've got your editing hat on and you're reading a book on submission what is it that you're looking for that makes you want to buy it maybe you could give us an example from one of your more recent acquisitions yeah it's it's funny because I think when you're reading submissions you're really trying to be two people at once who are sort of in opposition to one another which can be quite a sort of discombobulating experience because you're really or certainly I am really trying to be just a pure reader the reader that I was before I knew anything about publishing and I'm also at the same time being a publisher so the reader in me is coming to a text as purely as I can and just reacting the way any other reader would in the you know and thinking is this making my heart race is this surprising me is this exciting me in a new and unusual way but at the same time, the publisher in me is thinking, where does this fit? What kind of trends does it swim within or against? Who's the author? Is it a debut? Is it the kind of book that looks like it's going to possibly go to auction, which might mean it's difficult for us to acquire because we're an independent? How do we pitch it? All of those things. So you're kind of, I suppose what you're doing is you're appraising the literary merit of something while it's while at the same time assessing the publishing opportunity. And those are two quite oppositional things, but they're they're as important as each other. And I would I would say in some ways at Serpent's Tale, I think what I try to do is privilege the pure reader in me over the publisher mind and actually sort of ha- argue with myself about whether to do something. But I think as an independent publisher, it's the books that really speak to you, even though you know there are publishing obstacles that are often the best publishing opportunities because you know that other publishers might shy away from them because they think they're too tricky or they're not quite sure what they are or how to publish them. And those for us on Serpent's Tail are often the books that we love the most and are most likely to go for. So, I mean, there's loads of of examples of that across our list. A couple of recent ones, I had a a submission come in before Christmas and the agent said to me, "Um, the first thing I have to tell you is that this is a graphic novel. And my my sort of heart sank because we've never published (laughs) graphic novels. They're really difficult to sell they're expensive to produce we don't I I felt we don't know how to do them and then I opened the file and started reading this book which is by an illustrator called Lizzie Stewart it's a really wonderful novel called Alison and I just fell in love with it and it sort of didn't matter what it was it mattered that I loved it and if my colleagues loved it too then we would find a way to do it and happily we are so it's that it's that kind of thing where you just you sort of do have to follow your heart which sounds a bit romantic but I think is really absolutely true. Maybe you could take our listeners through the editorial process after you've bought a book. How many rounds of editing do you tend to do, for instance? And what are you looking for in each round of edits that you're doing? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it completely varies from book to book. And some books that you take on are really, you know, almost perfect and don't really need very much work at all. And others are far from that stage, but definitely have the potential to get there. 
the, my first lessons as an editor really was um, when I was working at RCW, the agency, my first boss, Deborah Rogers, was this incredible, legendary, incredibly successful agent who was a very, very strong editor, but she barely ever put um, pen to paper in the way that she edited. She used to just bring her authors into her office, sit them down and talk to them about their books as living things. And so she would just often spend hours in this kind of dusty, crazily messy old office, just giving a lot of time to writers and treating their books as the kind of living representations of life that they were. And if there were problems in the book or things that she didn't think were working, the way that she would talk about them was kind of as questions or sort of puzzles to solve, but they she would never provide answers because... I don't think as the editor, you do have the answer. The author always has the answer. Sometimes they just need a bit of help to find it. So that's kind of a long-winded way of saying, for me, editing in the first instance is about talking and listening um, and forming a relationship with a writer where you really can establish that they trust you, that you understand their work and that you want to help them take it as far as they can. So when I work with a writer, I will always first of all establish that relationship and that level of trust between us and then start to talk about what we think sort of works and what we might develop and what we could try and then convert that conversation usually into a set of notes that they so they have something concrete to go away and think about and that's that kind of I guess becomes what we in the trade call a structural edit which is sort of big broad brush questions about sort of areas of a book that might need work And when they come back with revisions and a new draft based on that, then you might have another round of that kind of thing, depending on how far they've taken the book. Or you might go straight into what we would then call line editing, which is where having fixed some of the sort of question marks in the book, you just then really attend to the sentences and think about the language and make sure that everything is is singing as beautifully as it can. Um, I do kind of like to think when you're acquiring literary fiction, which is primarily what I do, that you're buying a book that might not be perfect, but what you love about it is the writing, because that is the thing that it is. And so line editing for me is often about kind of picking up weird ticks and things that authors don't realise they're doing, but it's not about really deconstructing and interrogating the prose too much, because the prose should be the thing that you've already agreed is great. So yeah, but it, as I said, it really varies from book to book. And I, f- I feel it's a very dynamic, creative process that doesn't really have a set rule as to how it should run. It's really about who the writer is and who the editor is and how they get along and, and where it takes them. That bond of trust sounds so vital that you're in that process, right? That you you have to trust the writer and the writer has to trust you, but you, but you have to trust one another, right? That you're... Um, that you're on the same page. I mean, you must also find that you occasionally disagree with authors over the editorial direction of their book. And I wonder, like, how do you get through that? How do you maintain that trust while overcoming obstacles together? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it comes back to to what I was saying uh, just before, I think, which is something that I think you do always have to remember as an editor is that it's not your book, it's the writer's book, and you don't have the answer. And even if you might make a suggestion that you think would work way better than it, than what they've come up with. If they don't like that suggestion and they come up with something that you still don't think is as good as the suggestion that you've made, you then sort of have to make your peace with it and just try and make it as good as you can on 
on the understanding that it's where they want to take it. I've never had a situation where I haven't been able to agree with an author to the extent that we haven't published the book. But I, I certainly have had back and forth with forth with authors where it just it's kind of hard that you have, you can't quite agree on sort of how something should work and in in those cases you just uh, you just sort of have to find a middle way through as best that you can and usually it turns out into something that you can both accept and if you if there's sort of when you're deep in an edit you can have a scene that really sort of niggles at you you don't think quite works and then actually when you step back from it you either change your mind or completely forget about it and then reviewers will say it was the best scene in the book and then you, know, you realise that you were wrong or, you know, because it is really subjective too. So, yeah, it's, there's, there is a lot of compromise, I think, involved in the whole process and diplomacy too. I, I think you're right that it is so subjective and anyone who loses sight of that and thinks that their vision is the only vision probably isn't a very good editor. This is kind of what you were alluding to in your first answer, but one of the things that surprised me so much, I guess, when I when I entered the publishing industry is how much more editors do than edit books and, you know, how much more a publisher like you does than edit books, especially, and how much, you know, you kind of have to cajole, you're almost like a project manager. You have to cajole everyone in house to get on board with a book and work with all of these other departments and oversee the whole publishing process. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and maybe what your your favorite part of that whole process is outside of of the physical process of editing with the author? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think publishing is absolutely a kind of enormous team effort and that effort, sort of quite how many people that involves can often be quite invisible or hard to sort of imagine from the outside, I think. But so I think as a publisher and more even more so as a, as a publisher than as an editor but as an editor too really your primary job beyond the editing of the book is to be that book's foremost advocate in-house and out of house so in-house what that means is that the moment you acquire the book hopefully at that point you already have a lot of excitement from your colleagues who have also read it and agreed that we should acquire it and publish it but you all you really need to kind of build on that from day one and keep building on it but you also have to treat the rest of your colleagues as part of the team and really kind of include them in everything that you're doing and and let them lead on the things that they're best at and and you lead on the things that you're best at so that you kind of all buy in and feel an ownership to the book and that you know there's so many different aspects of that that start really early when you acquire a book you're having conversations with the sales team about sort of where you'll be pitching it and how you're having conversations with the art department about how it's going to look. You're having conversations with publicity and marketing about where you're going to position it and who you're going to talk to and, you know, who's going to cover it and all of those things. It's sort of like it's a small web in-house and it just spreads further and further out. But I think that collaboration is sort of, it's so rewarding and it's so with our books that we really, really fall in love with, we we kind of feel like before they're unleashed into the world, so much work has gone into them and there's so much sort of affection for them and excitement for them that they really, when they actually really turn out to be very successful, it's it's such a wonderful feeling because you feel like you've you've all invested so much and gone on that journey with the author. So, yeah, it's, it's really like, and I think that's actually interestingly 
when I moved to publishing that from agenting that was the thing that I really really loved was feeling part of this big ship that was sort of sailing you know trying to kind of go out on a voyage together and I think with agenting I loved the individual relationships I had and I loved the te- the small team feeling of an agency but there's something sort of bigger that that happens at a publisher I don't mean better but sort of bigger in a scale way that I think can be really sort of exciting that I, I love being part of. Can you tell us a little bit about Serpent's Tale specifically what do you think makes it so distinctive as a publishing house and um and what was exciting to you about it when you moved there yeah so serpent's tale is all it's so we're turning 35 this year which is sort of amazing to think really because I think we always for a long time have hung on to this notion of ourselves as a, a rebellious teenager and we're, we're way past <laughs> that now and there are many more rebellious teenagers um coming through but um, so Serpent's Tale was set up in the 80s by Pete Ayrton, who is this amazing person who really wanted to bring sort of world literature to British readers in a way that publishing hadn't been doing um, at the time. And so right from the start, it's had this reputation for publishing writers from all over the world in original English and in translation um, and publishing sort of radical books or books that were kind of risky or dark or sexy or kind of just the books that were sort of changing the conversation in some ways. And when I first joined um, in 2012, it still absolutely had that reputation, but it also had some huge successes like Lionel Shriver's We Need to Talk About Kevin and publishing David Peace at the beginning of his career and Colm Tabine and The Sexual Life of Catherine M and like various sort of breakout books. Um, so I suppose that kind of outsider-ishness appealed to me because I've never... I'm not. I'm certainly not as much of a cool outsider as Pete Ayrton ever was, but I. I think I've always seen myself slightly on the edge and not like completely in the mainstream. So I felt like it would be a good um, fit for me. Um, but also, I was really interested to think about how that reputation and identity of being a bit outside and being really open-minded about what people could read and and would be open to, how to embrace that, but also kind of enlarge it. So not only kind not not kind of necessarily only be thought of as the rebellious teenager but kind of change people's minds about what outsiderishness is and actually allow some of those books to penetrate through into the mainstream which i think is one of the things that we've been doing yeah and on the subject of outsiderness or books that are a bit outside of the mainstream one of the things i like about how you've described serpent's tale to us in the past it's a publisher that can publish a book that might not fit anywhere else and i was wondering if maybe you could talk about that in the context of a book called under the blue which i know serpent's tale are publishing in the coming year yeah absolutely so this is a it's a crazy story really this book we're publishing this brilliant debut novel next month called under the blue by a writer called Oana Aristidi. And um, it, the manuscript was sent to me in autumn 2019. I was just about to go on maternity leave, so I was heavily pregnant. And this manuscript landed on my desk, and it was a novel about a pandemic that had ravaged Europe, killing almost everybody in Europe. Um, and the three remaining survivors, an artist and two young sisters, go on this terrifying road trip across Europe in an abandoned gold um, 70s Mercedes with like really extremely cool car <laughs> despite the sort of um, terrifying circumstances that they find themselves in 
um, and uh, are trying to get to as far away from Europe as they can to a place of safety. Uh, it's also, and so it's a literary thriller, but it's got this other strand to it, which is narrated by a, an AI who has been created by these scientists in the Arctic Circle to predict threats to the human race in order that they might try to avert them and is with a sort of focus on climate change. So when I read it, my, as I was talking about my kind of publisher brain and pure reader brain earlier when I'm reading submissions, my both my brains were sort of going into overdrive because I was like, it's a thriller. What? There's a robot. It's a it's a kind of it's a treatise on ethics and climate change. But hang on a minute. They're going on this road. You know, it was just so many different things were going on. And I it didn't feel like anything I'd read ever or for a really long time. It didn't fit into any category that I could think of. And it seemed totally outlandish as a setup. But I just loved it. It was just so convincing, so compelling, really unputdownable, and also felt like it had a really important message, which at the time was about climate change. That was sort of what inspired the writer to write the book and what it was really driving at. And I felt that it had a sort of urgency and a message that a lot of contemporary fiction sort of doesn't have. So I was really, really excited about it, but also kind of didn't know quite whether was it a sci-fi novel? Was it a literary thriller? What was it? But because I didn't know what it was, that excited me more. One of the things I've always loved is the Anthony Burrell phrase. I like it. What is it? It's one of those, he's that printmaker <laughs> yeah. who, makes, who makes those really nice, big, brightly coloured prints. And I used to have it hanging in the wall on the wall by my desk in the office because I feel like that's kind of the perfect question that as publishers we should be asking ourselves it's sort of asking us to do the work it's not the writer's job to tell us what it is it's our job to tell the world what it is and I felt that really strongly with this book was that it's really hard to categorize and we we should publish it and we should work out how to talk to the world about it so we were all really excited about it anyway and then the pandemic happened and we were like okay (laughs) we've got this novel about a pandemic and now there is a pandemic do we how do we kind of frame the conversation around that and do we hold off on publication will people want to read about pandemics will you know how are readers going to respond and in the end we we hadn't been planning to publish it until this year anyway because there was quite a lot of editing to do so we just held our publication date and the author wrote an afterwards kind of explaining the weird experience that she had of writing a pandemic novel before the pandemic hit and when we sent the book out what we found was really interesting was um climate activists uh, crime fiction writers and literary novelists all responded really rapturously to it and really, really loved it. So in a way, again, that is a sort of a challenge because it's like, well, which person do you put on the front? Who who are we angling it towards? And in the end, we've tried to just sort of celebrate every good thing about it and hope that that will bring people to it. And, you know, and we also have the other challenges of bookshops not being open, which all publishers have at the moment, but it feels as if it's a book that people... Are beginning to kind of engage with and talk about so so we're hoping that it will sort of get the momentum will continue to grow as people sort of realize quite how special it is it sounds wonderful and as a reader uncategorizable <laughs> is kind of my favorite thing to hear like i i love work 
non-fiction and fiction that's straddling all of those different boundaries so it sounds like yeah. sounds like one for me I, I want to ask you about your tradition at Serpent's Tale of publishing international voices um, because it's it's such a vital role that publishing the publishing industry can play right bringing the perspectives of other people in front of other people and this cross-pollination of ideas that can happen and I wondered I mean if you think as a British publisher that Britain is particularly bad at reading outside of the English language or even the UK yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think as as um, a publishing industry or a reading culture that we're bad at reading in the English language outside of the UK. I would say that I think we probably read more American fiction, for example, than we ever have before. And that that is quite an interesting thing in itself, the extent to which American writers are so present to us now because we're all kind you know the way that we find out about writing and the way that we find out about writers is so kind of interconnected so I think on that side of things then there's definitely like a lot of international reading and a lot of books that come from America that we publish and perhaps fewer from other English speaking countries than there used to be or certainly that are kind of not as much sort of in the visible sort of trends of the moment. Um, in terms of translation, it's more complicated because I do think that the publishing industry has got better at publishing translated fiction, both across big publishers who, many of whom have done it for a long time, but lots of whom have sort of realised there are opportunities there and begun to embrace them. But perhaps even more because there's a new generation of independent publishers who are doing such amazing things like Fitz and, and and lots of others that are really just really focused on bringing international writing to the fore and are doing it um, in a creative way. But when you actually look at the numbers, it's still quite a tiny part of the market. And from a practical point of view, there are real challenges about costs and having good translators or having people that can read in the right languages. And I think probably one of the problems that we have in the UK is that we're not very good at learning languages. And so you don't get that many editors who can actually speak enough languages to have a really good grasp and understanding of the cultures and the the books that they might buy. And I think that is definitely limiting. When you look at, in comparison in Europe, all the editors that I meet from across Europe, most of them speak four or five languages and so can read across languages with ease. And I think that makes a really big difference. But I I do think it is better than it was, but I think it could be better still. And it doesn't feel like a great moment for international culture in Britain at the moment with Brexit having just happened and us feeling sort of further away from Europe and the rest of the world than we ever have. So yeah. I hope, yeah, I mean, I, I sort of hope that when when we go back to some kind of normal, just a, a sense of wanting to allow the world back in again, will really sort of be riding high in culture generally and that that will filter through to books and 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 what people want to read and where people want to go and oh yes it sounds like heaven (laughs) yeah doesn't it yeah who are some of the international writers that you're especially proud to publish on the serpent's tale list god there are so many to choose from I feel I I I have to mention one of our most beloved authors who's a French Congolese writer called Alain Maboncou who Pete Ayrton began to publish years ago and we've continued to publish for well over a decade. He writes these wonderfully polyphonic novels set both in Paris and in and um, in the area of the Congo where he grew up called Pont Noir. So they're sometimes quite autobiographical and other times really quite um, imaginative and surreal. Um, he's being compared to Joyce and Beckett and all kinds of 
of writers, but he's really his own person. He's been long and shortlisted for the International Booker Prize, I think now, and is a great feature on the festival circuit and so on. And he's just a really, really brilliant and unusual writer who feels like he's really been part of our family for a long time. So we love him. On the English language side, I would say, I think one of the writers we've been proudest of um, their success in recent years and sort of how the publishing has gone of their work is Carmen Maria Mercado, who's... We um, love her. Yeah, she's so amazing, (laughs) isn't she? Um, Yeah. And she, uh, you know, we published her stories um, first and then we published her memoir, which has now been longlisted for, or shortlisted for the Folio Prize, sorry. Um, And when we picked up the stories, it was one of our editorial assistants at the time spotted them and they hadn't been published in the US yet. And I think maybe they'd got one or two quotes or something. They were getting a tiny bit of attention, but not much more. And she put them into the hands of one of our editors and said, you've just got to read this because it's so good. And and we agreed and, and acquired the book and then it went on to have this huge success, but, you know, both in the US and then here. And then we'd established a relationship with her, which I hope will continue for many books. But those are the sorts of stories that I love because it's always for us a lot of the time as well. It's about having our eyes open really early and really paying attention to the writers that are coming through and just beginning to kind of build a little bit of a platform and a little bit of a readership but haven't sort of caught everybody's eye yet and I think we've always been good at spotting those writers and we're hopefully continue to be good at it. Yeah another thing about the Serpent's Tale book that I think makes it feel distinctive is that it feels very fresh and current and I wrote out that question to ask you and then I was like, I'm not actually sure what makes a book feel fresh and current. Yeah. I, d- I have that sense, but I don't actually know what it means. So I wonder if you could help me <laughs> elucidate that. Um, what do you think a book needs to do to be fresh and current? It is, as you say, it's really hard to pin down exactly what that means. But I think it's ultimately that it feels that it's just doing something a bit differently. It might be tackling a familiar subject or it might be set in a familiar place or kind of like you almost think it's familiar but there's something about it that isn't the same as what you've read before maybe using some examples would sort of help illustrate so I think like for me two of the writers that I am really really proud to publish um two American writers Susan Choi and Mary Gateskill maybe we'll talk about Mary a bit more later but both of them, their recent books, um, Susan Choi's Trust Exercise and Mary Gateskill's This Is Pleasure, are books that are about the Me Too movement in some ways, in the sense that they are about consent and power and the kind of complex interplay between the two. But both of those books are books that I acquired in the context of, and Carrie, as an agent, you'll sort of be familiar with these things, that, but that you get these big waves of submissions of books of, in certain areas kind of linked to cultural trends so for a little while almost every novel that you'll be sent will be a me too novel (laughs) described in some way and so both of these books were around that time where I felt like I was reading a lot of writing that was a lot of which was really interesting and and all of which was really necessary but then these two books came along and in their different ways they felt like they were stepping back from the subject thinking about it and casting a new and sort of um, more not necessarily provocative but just making you think in a new way and opening up the conversation in a different way and I'm always looking for books to do that I think because you always 
you kind of need to be able to make a case for a book and say, it's not like all the other books. It's like this. And the reason why is X, Y, Z. You also at Serpent's Tale have a history of publishing voices that don't always get a platform in publishing. And, you know, it's like all industries, an industry that has come under criticism lately for prioritizing certain perspectives over others. What do you think is important about including these alternative voices and how can publishing as an industry get better at including them, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't wish to sound at all like I think we have done everything that we can or are um or are perfect, but I do think it's fair to say that Sir, because Serpent's Tale has a background and a history of always looking outside of the mainstream and looking for um, voices which might traditionally be seen at the margins and, and always publishing those voices, that it's sort of in our DNA to look outside of ourselves and to want to publish a really diverse list of authors. This is not to say that I think our work is done or there isn't more that we could do, um, because of course that always is. But I think that that has meant that we, well, we just, you know, we have a backlist of authors that is really, really diverse and our front list continues to be really inclusive. So, but I think across publishing, there is, you know, there has been a really necessary conversation. That conversation is ongoing and there there is a lot of change coming through. And I think, there are a lot of really good, interesting writers coming through and being supported that were perhaps being overlooked in the past. In a funny sort of way, there's, there's almost a bit of a challenge presented to us as an indie publisher now, because I think we were once not in competition with other publishers for the writers that we want to publish, whereas now we are in a way. And that is a good thing for writers. So I'm not complaining about it at all. I think it just emphasises that when you're an independent publisher, you need to kind of keep looking forward and keeping your op- an open mind about where you're finding people and how you're f- but also generally I do think it's really important for us as editors and publishers to kind of never see our literary education as over or our taste set in stone I think lots of us in publishing have a background in having studied literature at university and therefore have been participating in lit- literary culture for a long time which can mean that you can have set ideas about sort of what literary is or what good is or what what your taste is. And I think it's really important to see your taste and your ideas about literature as constantly evolving and just being constantly open to new things and new forms of writing, whatever they may take. Um, If they stimulate you and they open your eyes and they make you think, then they're worth reading. So across the Serpent's Tale team, we're always really sort of trying to keep our eyes open and keep our open minds and challenge ourselves about our own assumptions and and keep looking for really brilliant new writers. I think it comes back to that point about subjectivity again too, doesn't it? That, you know, being having to be so aware that your taste is something that's been shaped by your life and your own privileges and there's not one way to be a good writer and also why it's so important that there are so many different kinds of editors who are acquiring books because they're all going to come to those books with different ideas about what they want to read and what other people want to read as well. And one of the books that you've published recently that I'm really excited about, I know Carrie is as well, is Detransition Baby. So can you tell us a bit about that novel and tell us what you liked about it when you acquired it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing to say is that I didn't acquire it. It was um, acquired by one of our brilliant young editors, um, Leonora Craig Cohen. And when she brought it up at our acquisitions meeting, I think we all just 
we felt really, really strongly that it was a brilliantly entertaining and really well-constructed novel on its own terms, but it was also really an opportunity to change the way people thought what the possibilities of trans literature actually could be. And so it felt like a kind of brilliant opportunity in all kinds of ways. I don't know how much you know about the book, but um, Tori Peters dedicates the book to divorced cis women. And <laughs> it's a, you know, it's kind of been described as sort of like a trans sex in the city. And there's the first great trans realist novel and, you know, all the labels that books get kind of never, you know, always a bit reductive in a way. But what, what the book really does, I think, which is so wonderful, is that it welcomes any reader in regardless of their identity and kind of allows and all within the book there are characters you know there are trans characters there are cis characters and there are people that the whole kind of story is about different people deciding whether to try and make a family together and raise a child together and coming at that from various different identities but whichever wherever you're coming from as a reader there are things you can take from that and feel kind of seen and included by and what's been really lovely about the reviews as they've come through you know, on Amazon and on social media is that people feel like they really belong in that book. And I think so. I, so for, for me, it's I feel that it's both like genuinely a commercially like really appealing, a very, very readable book that I think lots of people could buy and read. But it also genuinely is radical in that it has the potential to change how people think about trans people and how we how we all relate to each other and in that way it's kind of radical without actually being an outsider book and that is kind of slightly comes back to that question of how to enlarge the idea of what radical might mean and in terms of what we do at Serpent's Tale so I think yeah it's been it sort of was almost like a perfect book for us and one that I think lots of other publishers looked at and thought well is it kind of too niche or is it not niche enough or what or they just didn't quite know what it was but as as I've sort of said in other and other of the things that we've talked about that kind of always feels like we know we're onto something when we're asking those (laughs) kind of questions. That's also such an important skill to be able to bring a, a conversation that might be happening at the margins that really needs to be happening in the mainstream from one position to the other by telling a really cracking story you know that's like a beautiful thing to do and stepping back from any you know from what might be really charged divisive debates that are going on around that subject and just taking characters and respecting them for who they are and allowing them to to sort of be listened to as characters and as human beings and and learning from that which I always find is a much more constructive and and interesting way of of thinking about anything you mentioned Mary Gateskill before. You might know that we are huge Mary Gateskill fans on this podcast. Um, yes. We we recently had a conversation with her, which totally blew my mind. I see that you are coming out with her first UK collection of nonfiction this year. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what excites you about Mary Gateskill's writing. And do you think it's resonating particularly now? Because I feel like people have come back to it, and I certainly have as a reader. There's person. a kind of Mary Naissance yeah I just made that up right now it's probably not good enough to use it again, I'll take but... it. I'll take it. <laughs> um yeah I mean she's amazing isn't she and she's sort of 
It's strange to me. It's very strange that she was for a long time sort of on the margins in a way. If you were a particular kind of reader, she was really central to your reading and your kind of your literary taste and so on. And that's been the case for a long time. But I think certainly in the UK, she wasn't read by very many people until a few years ago. And I think a few different things have happened, really. I think one is that the the kind of unapologetic and clear-eyed way that she writes honestly about the female experience well and about you know the way that um, women and men and and um, sexual relationships unfold and all relationships unfold I think has come back into vogue a bit in in terms of some of the newer writers coming through and a lot of those younger writers cite her as a really important influence so I think she's sort of been brought back a bit because of that but I think also it's because both at Serpent's Tale with um, when we published This Is Pleasure, which started it out as a um, New Yorker, a piece in The New Yorker, which we then published as a book, and then Daunt's publishing Lost Cat last autumn. I think often with writers who've been around for a long time, they also just need really, really passionate publishing champions to, to, to kind of pick their work back up and say, I'm going to really, really put this at the forefront of what we're doing and, and, and make people take notice. So I think Mary has, Mary's work has had that in us um, in the last few years in a way that's been really, that's really worked. But it's also her work is kind of hitting the right notes at this moment. And that's kind of really why people want to read her. Because I think the thing about her is that she's not She's never wanted to be on anyone's team. She's never minded whether people like her or not. And she's always really said things as she thinks them. And she thinks incredibly carefully and incredibly deeply about really interesting things. So in her fiction, you know, it's funny because she said about This Is Pleasure, she wanted to write about that subject in fiction because she felt that in nonfiction, you just can't get to the subtleties and the complexities of a question like this if you're trying to write it in a non-fictional way which I totally agreed with at the time and then I read her essays and I thought well actually she's coming at it with just as much subtlety as she would in her fiction she's just so good that she can't help it yeah so I think she's just it's quite freeing reading her because she sometimes kind of goes where other people aren't willing to go or she thinks the thing that's difficult to think and allows you to think it with her and then helps you to kind of get get to a better understanding of what you might think about something which might not be exactly the same as her but she just liberates you a bit and it's really rare I think to have that in a writer and it's really rare to find a writer who unites such a broad range of readers you know she sort of she much much older people read her as well as kind of people who are 23 and I think that's that's kind of you know that's such a gift when you have a writer like that that can do that and it's just a testament to how unbelievably good she is so yeah we're super excited about the essays which um are coming out in November and are like really wide-ranging some of them are kind of quite hard-hitting sort of subjects she wrote an amazing essay about date rape and her own experience of rape but there are also essays about kind of why she loves Dickens and like her favorite Bjork song and you know so it's really yeah it's kind of like a real tour of her mind um, oh, it sounds so good. I love listening to you describe her then as well, because you're right, she's so sovereign and there's something in that sovereignty that makes space for you to also find your own sovereignty. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah it's so great. Way of putting it. Our last question is is really for you as a reader rather than you as an editor or a publisher, but just what kind of books are you enjoying reading at the moment? 
Well, oh, um, I'm not reading nearly as many books as I would like. Partly I'm, re- I'm sort of scrambling my way through the books that are being submitted to me as, as much as I can, but really falling behind on that front with small kids at home and general kind of navigating a full-time job in lockdown. But the little that I am managing to read for pleasure, I'm actually, at the moment, I'm reading a novel. It's taking me ages to read because I only read about five pages a night. But it's this beautiful novel that Granta published just at the beginning of this year called Ten Years by Austin Duffy. Have you heard of it? No, no. I didn't read it. It's, um, no. it's an He's an Irish writer. I think it's his second novel. And it's about a father and um, a man and his daughter who's 16. And at the beginning of the novel, the, um, the mother dies. The p- mother and father are separated, but the mother dies after a long battle with cancer. And the father takes his daughter to New York, which is where the mother was from, um, to reunite her with the mother's family and have a kind of memorial service and so on. But what transpires in the course of the book is that the father is suffering from the early stages of dementia. And as the novel goes on, that begins to be revealed, but not not through an omniscient narrator, but through you spending time with the character. It's a very subtle, subtle the way it's done and, and incredibly moving and but also it's a father-daughter story. So it's all, you know, it's sort of about this young woman and, and sort of how she's finding her way in the world. It's really, I, I'm not being very articulate about it because I'm sort of in it at the moment, but I'm really, mm. yeah, I'm finding it very, very affecting, beautiful. Not, I wouldn't say quiet book, but it's not a book that I guess would grab, grab headlines at, at the moment. It's not kind of, it's just really, it's really, really good. So I'd recommend it to anybody. Hannah Westland, it has been so fun to talk to you today about your job and about Serpent's Tale more generally and just about books and your love and passion for books really has come through, I have to say. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really lovely to talk to you both. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Serpent's Tale, who sponsored this episode, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Fiction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. I check it occasionally. I do love reading your emails. Keep emailing us. (laughs) If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with Catherine Angel, which we're very excited about. And we will also be launching our Patreon page. So keep your eyes on our socials for more information about how you can support our work. We would really love it if you did. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>